Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. There is no better method of trying to resolve problems that are current for all of us than working collaboratively with peer-to-peer networks. And that's what a trade association provides. So, I mean, my, my fundamental advice, you won't be surprised to hear, is come and join the trade association. If you're not a member of it, we do all of this, but we, you know, we do it for the good of the industry, but it's it's by members for members. But none of the issues that people are grappling with at the moment, rents, business rates, local authority planning, licensing, employment challenges, Um, None of them are all debt. None of them are business specific. They're all shared in common. This is Kate Nichols, CEO of UK Hospitality. UK Hospitality is the single voice for hospitality here in the UK. And they are seeking to how they can unlock the industry's full potential in their work. So I was super excited to have Kate as our guest, but also celebrating together with her that this is episode number 200 which is a great milestone for us to achieve here at hospitality mavericks kate has since her arrival at uk hospitality played a strong role in promoting the hospitality industry positively especially during the pandemic and beyond and she has for her great work received an obe and in this conversation kate gives great insights into the purpose and mission of uk hospitality and what they're doing right now to help the industry in these challenging times we discuss the most pressing issues for the industry and also how kate and the team at uk hospitality are trying to raise these with the government and find solutions short and long term we talk about the big challenges ahead and we especially dive into the staffing challenges and how they are really putting big pressures on the, the operators out there. There's a great shout out to Mark and the team over at Rising Hospitality for their outstanding work in attracting more great people to our industry. And we also get an insight into how Kate makes hard decisions as a leader and why she loves to read and some top advice for hospitality leaders out there. If you liked today's episode, it would mean a world to me if you could leave a review of the show on our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The better reviews, the better guests and ultimately better learning for you. Now there Maverick, it's time to grab your pen, your notebook, your favorite drink and take the learnings in and more important, put them into action. Enjoy. Today, we have a, a big treat for you, I would say, and uh, you're going to be listening to uh, what I call the voice of UK hospitality, Kate Nichols. And uh, I'm very excited that she came on as a guest uh, because she has a very tight schedule, 
But I think there is something she might, from her bird eye view of what's going on in the industry, maybe can learn us as operators, investors, leaders out there in the industry, how we actually build better businesses or how we participate in making the industry better because that's what we're all interested in. So with that said, I would love to welcome you, Kate, to the Hospitality Maverick show. Uh, and you actually going to be episode number 200 by totally accident. But I think that's quite cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me. 200 is an auspicious number. It is. It is. It's a milestone on, on, a, on, a, on a journey. So for, for people, I'll be very surprised. But just for people, could you give it a bit of background, you know, who you are, your, your journey, but also what is uh, UK hospitality and what is your mission? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I'm Kate. I'm, I'm Chief Executive of UK Hospitality, and that's the national trade body for hospitality businesses. And it's primarily our membership is primarily operators, owners and employers. And, and we are their voice at a political level in the media and with the general public. So my role is to be the face and the voice of the industry um, as the leader of the trade association um, and to provide support, advice and guidance to those businesses that are within membership. So we have 700 member companies. Between them, they operate over 100,000 pubs, bars, restaurants, hotels, nightclubs. So we do everything in the eating and drinking out space, accommodation, and we move into to visitor attractions too. And that gives us the strength in depth to be able to represent the industry and to be that voice and face. So that's roughly 95% of the UK market. We go from everything from a single site operator to the major national and international chains. Um, and we're owned by the members. We work for the members and we're driven by what they are telling us. They are hearing, seeing, experiencing in the commercial and the operating environment. And my job is to translate that through to create the most benign um, fiscal and regulatory environment. Uh, but also to, to help to, to portray the industry in a good light uh, through the media. So we have four key pillars that we work on. Our main mission is to promote the sector as a great place to grow, work and invest, both for the companies, the individuals, the businesses within it. Uh, secondly, we are preventing the unnecessary costs of doing business, so pushing back against regulation, making sure that we've got that supportive framework. Uh, we are promoting and protecting the business interests of our members by providing good quality advice and guidance on compliance, but also consumer insight, horizon scanning, intelligence, so that those smaller businesses in particular can look ahead, can lift their eyes beyond the immediate to look at how their businesses might be developing. And then our final tranche of work is around the ESG and the corporate governance mechanism for the industry really making a virtuous circle back. So providing that um, industry overview on carbon net zero, sustainability, good corporate citizenship, and how to be a good employer. So that again, when we go back to politicians to be able to talk about the good reputation of the industry, we have a, a positive story to tell. Um, and you asked a bit about my background, which, which I haven't sort of really touched on very much, but my background is... Um, 30 years working in, in politics and in hospitality. Um, so I initially, after graduating, worked in the House of Parliament, uh, civil service in Whitehall, the European Parliament, um, and also the political advisory level, and then started to work in Whitbread, which is how I got introduced to, 
to hospitality um, and worked in corporate affairs, strategic affairs, mergers and acquisitions at, in Whitbread at the time when it ran breweries, pubs, David Lloyd Leisure, coffee shops, restaurants, hotels. So I had a good, broad-based understanding of the operating models of all of those. Um, and then over the course of uh, the, the last sort of 20 years, I have worked in trade associations being the voice and face of, of that sector. Initially, I was chief executive from 2013 of the Association of Licensed Multiple Retailers, which was pubs and restaurants. And then I took the, uh, the, the association and the merger with the British Hospitality Association, which was hotels, fine dining and contract catering in 2018 to create UK hospitality as that single voice um, and then on the back of that, have worked with government through the COVID pandemic to be able to be that, that voice and face of a sector that hasn't previously had that recognition at a, a national media and political level. And it's very interesting what you said there, because like I think recognition has always been a challenge for the for the industry. But what gave you the itch to join this industry? Because it's like a bit of like sometimes when some people is a Marmite industry, either you fall deeply in love with it or you just think I need to get out of here. But what was like the thing that made you like think this is where I'm going to devote my time to? I, I guess like so many people, I did fall into hospitality by accident. Um, I was at the time taking through a number of pieces of legislation in the European Parliament that were looking at food additives and food regulation and food safety. And I was lobbied by a large number of the brewers, um, but also the, the, the restaurant and hospitality sector about the impact that that would have on their businesses. And that's what got me interested in the subject. Uh, but then starting to work for Whitbread on the back of that, it was all about the people for me. This is a people industry. And it's putting together the policies and procedures and, and issues that will address concerns, support the businesses and help people to develop, which I found really quite intriguing. And in a lot of industries, looking at that political side, that regulatory side, it is quite dry. You know, it's very difficult to engage people in widget factories or nuclear power stations. The hospitality sector is really accessible so you can have good conversations you can promote uh, good solutions um and you know that my job is all about looking for the art of the win-win it's a very similar to a commercial deal-making job where you're, you're looking at commercial negotiations with a, a political environment or political leaders looking for that solution that delivers the objective without damaging the business and for hospitality, the added impetus is that everything you do matters to people on the ground, their livelihoods, their jobs, but also for consumers, what you're doing and delivering is something that makes their lives better. So it's not just about commercial and pound signs. It's also about the social, cultural contribution we make to our communities. It's about bringing light and life to our town centres and high streets. So for me, that's really appealing because you're seeing demonstrably what's happening, what you're, what you're doing on a daily basis is having an immediate effect on people's lives and jobs. And the decisions that get taken can, can result in, in big investment being unlocked, people having more meaningful careers. You know, that, that's a very tangible output that you can see. Uh, I really love that because I've always 
for myself has also been about the people that actually when you touch one human in a hospitality business actually can dribble down all the way out to the guest at the day they're gonna get and i i love that kind of thing with hospitality and i don't I've, i've been in tech as well you can't find it in the same way you don't you don't find it in other industries we're a very collaborative industry you have huge camaraderie. People are really willing to give you their time to support you in what you're trying to do. People look at nurturing and creating that nurturing environment. And you just don't get that in retail, in finance, in in tech, in IT, that doesn't come through. And I always say that what hospitality does is to give every every person a little bit of a hug in an everyday moment. That's what we do. We make people's lives better in a very small way, but in each and every single way that we do it, if that ethos feeds through, that makes for a a nice network to support people at all levels. Yeah, and those small changes, you know, little by little, a little becomes a lot. There's an African provinces, and actually those small hocks means a lot in tough times as we're in right now as a society. Yes, I'm always attracted to the Dave Brailsford, who was the the, the sort of director at Sky when he was looking at the the cycling and how do you get the cycling team to the next level. It's not about big changes. It's about a small, a big number of small incremental changes delivers a big effect. And that's what we do when we're talking about sustainability or carbon net zero or employment. Sometimes the problems that overwhelm us in the sector are so big you you find it difficult to work out how you as an, as an individual person or an independent business or at one small cog in a bigger part of the economy can make a difference. But what we focus on in UK hospitality is small changes that make a big material difference. And, and that leads perfectly to my next question I want to ask you is that what is then, you know, the, the top priorities, all the small changes you're working on now with huge impact for, for the industry? Well, I think you've got you know, three, three areas that, that we're really working on. You've got cyclical challenges that we're facing. You know, we've got very immediate emergency pressure that will come to bear in April in particular when inflation pressures will be at their, their peak. Uh, you've got energy support dipping away. You've got national living wage increases coming. So that cost of doing business, cost of living crisis will be at its worst in April. Um, when businesses are facing higher costs, consumers are tightening their belts, and we'll see the squeeze on margins. So we're working with the government around how do you address that? And there are some short-term issues that could be done to give the industry a breathing space, whether that's looking at um, extensions and improvements in the energy support, getting the regulator off-gem to get suppliers to pass on cost savings, but also looking at debt um, that's the big issue that's holding our businesses back and, and is, is make, meaning that people can't unlock investment. So some cyclical challenges there to overcome, focused around the budget tasks, around debt, around energy, uh, around inflation, but also around people. There's the structural issues that we've got, which is uh, uh, really around longer term reform, sort of beyond the next three months, looking six to 12 um, and beyond, where you really do need structural reform of business rates and rents and finance issues to build resilience back into the industry. And then the strategic challenges that we've got that government need to make some tough choices on. We've got longstanding labour shortages. We can do our bit to play our part. We need to do more to be able to to build good quality careers, to be able to communicate and to sell the benefits of the industry. But we do need a labour market strategy too to overcome those those shortages because 
10% labour shortages, which is what we've got and been running on since we reopened post-COVID, means that we're turning away business. Half of our businesses are saying that they are turning away about £25 billion worth of revenue that they would otherwise be able to fulfil because they're restricting hours, restricting days of opening, restricting occupancy. So we need to get the industry back to be able to fire on all cylinders, then we can deliver that economic growth that we all need. What is um, your perspective of, um, you know, where are you, if you take the, the, the wider industry and you're, you're representing both small and large operator, what is like if you could take a magic wand, because this is some huge challenges you put on the table, um, if you take a magic wand and make one of them disappear, which one would that be and, and why? And what would the impact in your view be for the industry and the operators? Gosh, that's a, it's a really good question because it is so different for different operators. Um, if you're looking at the industry as a whole, um, I think then the single biggest issue, single biggest factor at the moment is labour. You, you cannot drive sufficiently through the top line to, to be able to generate that, that growth if you were just to, to look at one of them. But, you know, the magic wand at the moment is you've got strong demand You've got a good level of consumer spend. Revenues are up there. It's never been harder to convert that top line into bottom line profit. Um, and if you're doing it with one hand tied behind your back because you don't have sufficient staff, that's a, a, a further restriction. The other issues that I identified will be variable for different businesses. And so for some, they will undoubtedly prioritize. If you were to do a magic wand and say, government, give us this and it will solve everything, we know that the big issue that the industry would like to see is, is that VAT rate come back down. That would give that breathing space, turn uh, businesses more profitable, uh, give them the ability to, to get margin back. Um, but at the moment, that's firmly off the table as far as government is concerned. But that would be a very quick and easy thing that the government could do to be able to, to get business profitable, to get inflation back under control and, and to tackle those price increases. Under the pandemic, you saw there was a lot of response from, from the government and, and, and help that took a lot of business through so they could open up again. And then the labor shortage challenge came, as you say, and it's still the same. It's not really moved. It's maybe just structural a little bit different. Um, what What is like your, like your wish for the UK government if they did? You just mentioned that. Is there other things they should do right now actually to take us through? Because I guess it's not just this year, but also next year we're going to have a recession, challenging environments. That's not only caused by hospitality operators, but it's going to impact every business on the whole. Yeah, well, these, I mean, there are global economic pressures that we're seeing coming through and have been since since COVID. I mean, you can't press Control-Alt-Delete on the global economy and supply chains and expect it to bounce back without impact. So the inflationary pressures, the supply chain pressures, the labour issues, they are common across the globe. They are felt much more acutely in the UK and I think in hospitality because we have that very high level of debt. So across Europe and across America, most of the support during COVID was provided through grants, not loans. And so those businesses are able to respond a bit more nimbly as we manage and navigate these uncertain times. Clearly, with the, the financial, uh, what the country's finances in the state that they are, the days of very big government intervention of the type that we saw during COVID are coming to an end. And so I think it's about how can we equip these businesses to be as resilient as they can be to withstand those pressures that you're talking about potentially for a, a long, shallow recession. Now, there are some positive signs out there that, that perhaps that doom and gloom that was talked about in October last year 
isn't going to come to pass. Interest rates are going to be peaking at a lower level and coming back down. Inflation peaking at a lower level and coming back down rapidly. And we are starting to see that. So we, what we know about hospitality is that we will rebound very quickly as soon as disposable incomes and discretionary spending returns and people feel a bit better off, they will come out and spend in eating and drinking out. So it's about how we get the businesses through the next three, four, five months until that positive news starts to happen, because undoubtedly it will start to improve second half of, next, of this year. Um, there is an energy issue around next winter where it could still be challenging, but, but you know, it, this is the peak period of time. And so what we would urge the government to do is to give that injection of support in March. Now, there are a number of things they could look at doing there. They could postpone the, the, the tapering off of the energy support by three months. That's something that could be happening because it's not costing the government as much because gas prices are coming down. They could require suppliers in energy to renegotiate contracts so that, again, the prices pass down as quickly as they can do. Um, and then, you know, it, it's about looking at tax incentives for investment. But I think in our sector, tackling that debt, giving those C-bills loans, extending them automatically to 10 years, giving people a breathing space on time to pay would help those businesses get through and avoid pushing them into failure prematurely. You also um, touch on the, the staffing bit, the, the 10% that's missing. And you said we, we need to be, uh, in the beginning, you allude to a more attractive industry to, to work in and be employed in. What is like the, some of the best initiatives you see? Because I think it's now a given across the industry. We understand we really need to do something here. And there's a lot of initiatives across companies, organization, doing to make the industry a better place. But what are some of the best things you are seeing out there that you get inspired from? Because my view is that if we don't fix that, it doesn't matter how much help we're going to get short term, because that's really the foundation of our industry. And you said you join for the, the people as well. Yes. And part of it is that we need to start changing the narrative. You know, if you've got almost three years worth of bad news stories about hospitality being closed, being disrupted. You've got so many people who started and then were furloughed, started and couldn't be furloughed, haven't had their career progression. We're talking about challenges and industry failure. It's not necessarily painting the industry in a great light to attract people into the sector. So we do need to paint a positive picture about what you can do if you come in here. Um, and I think part of the, the answer is just something that you touched on. There are lots and lots of really good local initiatives, but they are small in scale, they're very localized, or they're just with one in one company. And even the biggest companies in the sector are small in comparison to some of the large banks or the large retail. You know, if you want to change the perception of retail as a career, you talk to four companies. I've got 700 to try and get into a common place and a common position. That's really difficult. So I think part of what it's about is identifying a smaller number of initiatives that are really good and scalable across the whole of the, the sector and, and the country and making sure that everybody gets behind them and supports them. So you need one around recruitment, you need one around careers outreach into schools, you need one around training. And, and you need to have that compelling narrative about continuous professional development. While we've got 60, 70, 80 schemes running, you don't get that sense of scaling, you don't get that commonality of message. So, you know, what, what my background teaches me is a small number of simple messages hammered home 
by many voices is much better in getting that cut through. So we've done some brilliant stuff. I think um, if you look at Hospitality Rising, which is the first national advertising campaign that's been done uh, and we've been supporting, it's been on TikTok, it's been viral, it's been in places that young people look at. The strap line there is rise fast, work young. So it's working on those people who are looking at entry level jobs those young people in particular, and explaining to them how hospitality can give them those common transferable skills and give them an elevator up. So it's about making it appealing, making it fun, making it vibrant and dynamic and real for them so that they choose us rather than Amazon or rather than a desk job. So it's playing up that point about the people. Come and work in hospitality because you're going to be part of a team. You're going to be at the heart of a community. You're a local hero delivering great experiences and so it's, it's, it's much more stimulating. So Hospitality Rising is a, is a good example. We're working with the hotel sector who are doing careers outreach with schools. Um, and there's some brilliant work that's been piloted in Manchester by the Lowry. And that potentially has an ability to go back out, fill all of the needs of schools with careers, education and information, but also fit in with T levels and get into the business. And then at UK Hospitality, we're working on a common portable set of qualifications and training programs that can be done as a, a common induction so that every person starting in hospitality will get the same level of training investment and so therefore we, we don't get any bad experiences because we're such a fragmented industry we've got so many SMEs that unless we get some common standards at the bottom we're only ever going to be rated by the worst experience that somebody has coming and working in the sector. So th those are three key areas that we're looking at and the fourth one is about apprenticeships you know, taking people, we've got to pay that levy. Let's make sure we get the best out of the levy. Again, let's have some really good quality training that we all get behind and back, and then we can take people through that. And it's super interesting. You, you end with apprenticeships, which I worked with in my career in McDonald's as well. It can be quite powerful when it, when it works right because you actually meet people that might not, never would have had any education or get their skills confirmed is there any like skills or experience you think we are missing in the industry to to make this happen or you thought that needed to be boosted in a way because that's that's always critical when you have to make a transformation do you both have the experience and the skills to do that well i think it's not necessarily missing within the industry but i think there is there is um an inflexibility in the apprenticeship levy to allow us to invest in the skills and development we need and in all of these things you need to follow the money so if the money is not there for the skills that we need unfortunately it's very difficult to get further education colleges to provide it the training to provide it you don't get the funding for your own in-house training but i do think there's, there's there's sort of three key areas that i think we are lacking in the industry because it doesn't fit into that neat model um, I don't think we, we train enough on digital skills and increasingly the world of work is digital, whatever job you're doing. And if you're looking at the government's push on labour inactivity in over 50s and an older workforce, digital skills um, would be helpful to have bolt on as part of the training. The second one is, is training. This is not just a hospitality issue. I think it's a UK issue. We don't train managers and leaders. We sort of give people who are really good waiters, waitresses, front of house, sommeliers running their own bit or the kitchen. And then we promote them to a management position because that's the logical step up on supervisory routes. We don't necessarily invest in those skills to be able to t teach people how to manage other people. Um, and I, as I say, I don't think that's uh, just a hospitality issue. I think it's, it's a 
generally wider. Um, and then the final bit is the leadership. Again, the, the, the investment in those sort of top up skills to be able to show you how to be a leader and lead a team. That's another issue that we, we, we need to, to build on. What is your view? It's really interesting you, you, you're mentioning that because I totally agree. You're often very much invested into you become the experts, then you're promoted into the manager role and then, you know, development always siffle a bit. And the higher and higher you get, the less there is. And that's uh, ultimately in the end, you're responsible yourself. But what 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 is the consequences if we don't uh, address the, the management and the leadership part for you, in your view, for, for, for the industry, if we don't get better at that? The consequences really for the sector are twofold. First of all, we fail people when we're trying to, to develop them. You know, hospitality relies on or markets its USP as being you can go from bar to boardroom, entry level to, to board, the sky's the limit with the ultimate meritocracy. Yes, we are, but you are going to fail people if they get to a certain level and then can't see how they get any further forward. And then they move sideways or they move out. Um, and we lose some of our good people because you get burnout. Um, and I think, secondly, it's about developing our talent of the future. If we are going to be in a situation post-Brexit where we don't have um, rel- relatively straightforward and easy routes through to immigration, and we don't have a flow of people coming in who are willing to work um, it, it, for short-term contracts and, and short time that they're going to stay in the country, We need to be able to make sure that we've got the good quality people in management who can train the young people of the future. And then that makes that virtuous circle and the apprenticeship levy comes into its own because you can use it for training. But if you don't train the trainers, you don't train the people who are going to be delivering the service, then that's 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 a problem. And, you know, we don't have we don't place enough value in the UK on vocational education and vocational training. Um, so, so we don't have hotel schools and we don't have hospitality schools and tourism schools in the same way that you do on the continent. And therefore, you don't get those manager positions who've got that embedded training within them. Yeah, and also I made that decision. That is my calling and I'm going to go and train for this. It's a, a career. It's a, it's a vacation. The sense of professionalism, the sense of pride. You can't instill that lower down if you don't have that ethos at the top. And it is very interesting because my, my background is I'm from Denmark, as many listen to the show, and actually there is actually a route, there are many routes. You can take you can take the management route, you can take the chef route, but there's training at least two to three years for the foundation of whatever you do. Um, what about, uh, you know, how do you see the future? It, it seems like we, we've talked through a lot of challenges, but like, what is the hope? What, what kind of hope do you see for when we get past the challenges when we made all the small changes we need to do to 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 get through on the other side and then hopefully there is something very very nice coming yeah well the hope is in in that discussion that we've just had you know i think our sector is so vibrant so dynamic it's innovative it's constantly evolving it doesn't stand still it doesn't rest on its laurels And so it always looks at what more can we do to provide a better experience? What more can we do to stay ahead? How can we reinvent ourselves? Because that's what we have to do to appeal to a new guest. Every time people come through, you've got new people coming in who are looking at the industry in a different way. So I think that that a sense of um, curiosity and a sense of always looking at pulling it apart and putting it back together again uh, and that spirit of entrepreneurship is what gives cause for hope, whatever is thrown at us. 
um, you could see that through um, COVID. People pivoted on the sixpence and were able to look at changing their entire business model to do something different, to feed their supply chain in a different way, to uh, be able to continue to provide a service. So that constant reinvention, that constant dynamism, I think, is, is cause for hope and optimism. Secondly, it's about our consumers. People, I do think, now have a new value for hospitality and what it gives, that place to be able to socialise safely. We don't take that for granted anymore, um, and we do value it, and we value what it what it delivers. I think really there's nothing nothing more likely than having six months of having to cook and wash up yourself for your family in lockdown to give you an appreciation for somebody doing it for you. So, you know, you have got that value. And as I say, when we've done consumer sentiment research, half of all consumers say that the top priority when they've got discretionary money to spend is eating and drinking out. Secondly, it, it's sort of uh, short term stays, short breaks in accommodation, and then it's, it's holidays. So it's that experience led um, investment that people are still willing to make even in the toughest of times. So I've got cause for optimism that consumers, once they get through this, will come back and that hospitality will be able to thrive. And then, you know, thirdly, it, it's about the environment in which we are developing. You know, the, the, there is a lot of investment out there. There's a lot of investment potential. The UK sector is a mature market, but it's also a well-established market with operators within it who can take a concept from uh, initial one site to a national rollout and chain at pace, at scale. And we've got the skills and IP and we are one of the world's best, most dynamic, most vibrant, uh, but also best skilled hospitality markets. And so I'm confident that once we get through the challenges, that investment will come back in to allow the industry to, to get over the hump, to thrive and survive and to reinvent itself. Is there anything of all the things that's going on now that you're really excited about that actually going to, you know, support or even, you know, boost this hope you have for the future? I think it's the collaborative working that we've got um, looking at skills and training and development. You know, I think in the, in the idea of fixing the roof while the sun shines um, is something that we haven't necessarily been good at doing. We've always talked about people. We've always had a small labour shortage and a skills shortage. But now we know what we need to do. You know, there is a real commitment from operators to work collectively together to get that right. And I think if we can get that right, then we've got an opportunity to transform the reputation of our sector. Yeah, and I love that you're looking at the skill base because people would join the industry because they would like to become a better version of themselves, either from a skills point of view or as an individual. And I think we have a huge opportunity there to actually help young people to be ready for whatever future they want. Absolutely. And especially a, a, a new generation coming through who've been deprived of so much. You know, they, they haven't had work experience opportunities. I've got a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old daughter, um, two daughters. Um, unlike me at their age, they haven't had the opportunity for Saturday jobs, work experience. They've been schooled at home. They've had university um, social activities restricted. They haven't been able to travel and experience life. They haven't been able to develop their soft skills. And what we hear so often from teachers and from university lecturers and employers who are taking those young people on as they come into the workplace is their soft skills are not there. They don't know how to, to look at people in the eye and talk to people. They don't know how to engage in conversation. They don't know how to be able to manage themselves. 
Hospitality gives people a career from bar to boardroom, yes, but more importantly, it trains people in those soft skills to give them a springboard for jobs in whatever industry they want to go into. So I think we need to be proud and talk positively about our reputation in both of those areas to help those people coming through. Yeah, and we, we call them soft skills, but they are really hardcore skills because these are the skills I was trained in as a very young person. I'm still using the same management techniques and thinking that I did as when I was trained as a, a shift manager at McDonald's. And you, you maybe think, oh, that, that's crazy. But these are fundamental skills about how to communicate with people, how to read people, how to manage yourself, which is probably the most important bit of that journey. Managing yourself, communication with team, team working, team building, uh, team management, but also basic finance, basic business acumen, conflict resolution and management. These are all really core skills. And I think we need, we're also talking to the government about how we can build that in for people who are looking to return to work, being made redundant in other industries or mothers returning to work or over 50s returning to work from a period out of employment. Those kind of soft skills that we provide give them a sort of really good foundation for going on and developing their careers in later life. What what has, uh, you know, take yourself, you, you've been a leader, you're a leader of business, you're CEO of a very important organization. You have to make, you know, lots of decisions as well. And we, we're talking about leadership skills right now. And the one question I'm really interested in the moment is like, because I feel this is like, there's a lot of hard decisions that has to be made. It doesn't mean they're not good, but they definitely hard decision. How, how do you approach, actually, because I wanted to share that with the audience, how do you approach to make a hard decision in your job? Because you have so many stakeholders that you need to accommodate. I think first and foremost, I, I, I try and talk to operators as much as I can. So I probably spend half of my time talking to the businesses, um, engaging with them, finding out their concerns, finding out how it works, so that when the tough decisions come, when I'm talking to government, I'm really well equipped and grounded in what the industry needs, wants and has concerns about to be able to make a very fast decision. Because lots of the time I have to make very snap decisions. Either I'm asked about something in a media interview or when I'm giving evidence to a select committee, I don't have the time to be able to always go back and say, I'll come back to you and I'll think about that. I'm asked for an immediate response. So fast paced decision making is something that I have to, to do a lot of. So grounding in an understanding of the businesses. Um, I am then quite, I am quite reflective. So if I'm making a really tough decision, I like to be able to see all the pros and cons. I like to read a lot of information around it, work it through myself and then make a decision and be able to stick to it. So I think it's about, again, that fast paced and agile ability to make a decision based on a good grounding of information. I love the way that you actually you, you, you go out and seek insights to be ready for the decision when you don't know what's going to come and uh, you're training you're practicing before it's happening in a way and therefore you know the answer you know on the back of your hand when you asked yes and I, and I suppose I studied English at university so you know one of my skill sets is the ability to assimilate digest and understand a large quantity of material because at university we were reading eight to ten books a week um, so be able to, to, to read very quickly, speed read, absorb it, find the, the key element within it and then present it back to an audience in layman's terms. That's what I was trained in at university, if you like, and I've refined it throughout that whole period. 
Um, but, that, but that's a skill set that I found has stood me in, in good stead to be able to do that. But I see my role as sort of being the lodestar, the sort of north, northern lights kind of approach that, you know, follow me. This is the future. This is where we're going. This is how the industry is going to get there. Don't quite know how we're going to navigate all the forest that's in between. But trust me, this is where we're going and how we're going to get there. And then, as I say, it's about trying to preempt some of the challenges and make sure I'm as well equipped as I can be to take those very quick last minute decisions. And, and that lead me perfectly to the, my, my next question, Aria, and I asked all guests this question because it's so interesting. We, we talked about before the importance of managing yourself and, and and we all have to show up, whatever it is we are responsible in life. It's our family, it's the work commitments we have, and we have to show up as the best version or what I call pro. H- how, do you, how do you do that? Because you, in, in my view, looking from the outside, you have so many stakeholders again and uh, complexity is high in my view how do you show up pro and what do you do do you have like some 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 rhythms do you have some routines anything any good good ideas you could share with other leaders that also feel that pressure of complexity and lots of stakeholders yeah i suppose i the complexity i have because i i thrive on a high pressure environment i think um, and, and you know, sort of I actively enjoy a lot of the work that I'm doing and, and having that multifaceted, multi-plate spinning. Um, so, so I get a lot of energy from just doing that as a day job. Um, the challenge I have is, is the ability to decompress and, and I'm a bit of a sponge. So I have to protect my team from a lot of incoming from the operators who are going through hell. Uh, and, you know, we, we do get lots of independent businesses who will phone up and talk about their life's work going ending. They're having to hand back the keys. They're having to make people redundant. Those are quite hard for the team to manage. So I, I act as a bit of a buffer and soak up that that sort of negative energy or that 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 sort of concern that's coming through. And then I have to really make sure that I've got time for myself. And that's going to be different for everybody um, to how does how does that work for me? Um, my my routine that sort of helps me unwind is probably not to everybody's cup of tea but um, I do my social media first thing in the morning last thing at night so I just sort of feel that I've got everything down there Um, last thing at night I've always got my last little list but my two big things that I do to decompress and to get some headspace because I think it's all about time to yourself headspace to breathe that pushes all the work concerns out the way Um, I have to have a hot bath before I go to bed and I have to read for at least an hour. So I am an avid reader of fiction, not nonfiction, but fiction. Um, and, you know, one of the things I shared with people during the second lockdown at the beginning of 2021, um, I got 15 books for Christmas. Would I get through them all before we got out of lockdown was my challenge. So just set, a, set myself a challenge. I actually read 42 books between uh, January the 5th and May the 17th. So, you know, that kind of uh, reading a novel for an hour before I go to bed just totally empties my mind of everything else. Yeah, and, and reading is uh, one of the best practice, according to the Stoics as well, that you can do actually to, to clear your mind and get into that space of silence. You need to actually make better decision in life or in, in work. So, so, so staying at books, because like, as you can see behind me, I'm a I don't read so many books and books as you and eight in a week, but I love books and it's been a very big part of my journey and, and reading has been a very big part of a learn a lot 
from it and I study every day I read every day at least 20 minutes that's the, the minimum uh, I often fall asleep because I have small kids when I read in the night but what is like your favorite book that you give away nine out of ten times I could imagine you have that from your love of books oh um, no because I I would always try and choose a book that's personal to that person so I would never do the here's my favorite book, go away and read it. I mean, my favorite book is Wuthering Heights, my absolute favorite book. It's the one that I will go back to time and time again. Um, and, you know, must have read it hundreds of times. Um, but I would never presume to give that away. But I do, that's one of the things I really like if I'm buying Christmas presents, birthday presents for people, unless they're obviously not a reader or tell me that they're not a reader. I will try and find a book that is suitable for them and suits their personality that they can get something out of. What what is the uh, what is the plot or the main learning from Wuthering Heights, and why is it that you keep going back to it? What is it that it gives you? Well, I, I think the it, it's superbly written. You know, it, not even if you don't know the backstory of the Brontes and what 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 was being dealt with and and the how young she is when she writes it. But it is that dynamism between the, the main characters um, and, and the different ways in which they interact and, and the cause and effect. I just just think it's 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 an intricately and complex novel um, that brings together some some really complex characters that you find something new in every time. That's super interesting. Super interesting. Um... My wife actually said, has said to me, I need to read it. Now I, I'm probably going to go and do it because I'm more in the nonfiction in general or self-developed. And my wife now have told me I need to read, you know, fiction books at bedtime so I don't get fired up and start thinking about how I'm going to use this in the real world the day after. So um, one of the last questions to you, uh, Kate, is that what would be, you know, how can operators, leaders out there participate on this journey, what is like your top advice to them right now? I think my top advice would be come and come and join us on that journey collectively, because there is no better method of trying to resolve problems that are current for all of us than working collaboratively with peer-to-peer -peer networks. And that's what a trade association provides. So, I mean, my, my fundamental advice, you won't be surprised to hear, is come and join the trade association. If you're not a member of it, we do all of this, but we, you know, we do it for the good of the industry. But it's it's by members for members. Um, but none of the issues that people are grappling with at the moment, rents, business rates, local authority planning, licensing, employment challenges, um, none of them are all debt. None of them are business um, specific they're all shared in common so come and work it through collaboratively collectively come and join the trade association you might get the support that you need to get you through it even if it's nothing more than just hearing that everybody else is in the same position and you're not alone lots of rsmes find that valuable but also there will be common solutions that we can develop to, to make sure that the industry as a whole is in a better place because we are only as strong as our weakest link in this sector and therefore working to make sure that the rest of us are pulling together and that we have the solutions that will improve the whole environment has to be a good thing. I love that. Uh, better together in principle advice um, you gave there. So this is one of my favorite questions. Uh, is there one question you wished I've asked and what would that question be and what would you answer? Goodness. 
you know, I think we've covered everything. That I, I always live in fear of those sort of final questions at an interview where somebody's going to ask me, um, what's my favourite restaurant? What's my favourite hotel? What's my favourite pub? Um, and you put on the spot. Um, so, yeah, there isn't anything I wish you'd asked me. There's lots of things I'm glad you didn't ask me and didn't put me on the spot about. Well, that's a very good answer. I like that. Um, where can people find out more about you, UK hospitality, if they want to connect and so on? Through our website, um, you've got all the information, advice and guidance. An awful lot of it is freely available. There is a lot more that's detailed, that's advice and guidance that's in our members section. Um, so if you're, you have to be a member to get it, but it's ukhospitality.org.uk. Um, that gives you the information about the, the organisation, who we are, what we do and membership. Um, the best way to connect with me is um, either through Twitter. I am always on Twitter um, and do answer lots of questions on Twitter. And I'm at UKHospKate um, or just drop us an email, um, CEO at UKHospitality.org.uk and we can pick up any details from there. And then invite me out. I'd love to come and meet people's businesses. Um, I'll come and meet you on site. We can have a chat. Um, that helps me in my learning journey. That's a great invitation. Thank you so much, Kate, for, for coming on the show. And thank you for all your insights and wisdom. I send you and the team at UK Hospitality Power and Energy to continue walking forward with the banner for the hospitality industry. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat and look forward to doing it again sometime. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate or give a review or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization, find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick! <laughs> <laughs>